Food Heals Nation, what have you been doing lately when it comes to truly caring for your skin? Have you tried any of the light therapy facials or the LED masks? I've shared on this show how I use lasers to completely remove my brown spots in the past, and I love anything that can help me with wrinkles or blemishes or redness or scars. I find a lot of great products on YouTube that I test out, and I've just discovered a new brand. It's called Lima, and when you see the before and afters on YouTube, you're going to be a convert too. They are changing the way that you care for your skin on actually a profoundly scientific level. This is the Lima Laser. It's the world's most powerful clinic-grade cosmetic laser device and the only laser FDA cleared for at-home use. Why this is important is because I was spending, I'm not going to tell you how much, way too much money years ago when I was getting rid of those brown spots when I was really healing my skin. And now... This same type of technology is available at home, and I'm here for it. I am so excited. So this is a near-infrared laser light that penetrates deep into the dermis, simultaneously working on your fat, muscle, and bone to give you like a non-surgical facelift. It transforms your skin. It helps skin issues like wrinkles, sagging, blemishes, pigmentation, redness, breakouts, and scars. And it does this with zero damage, zero pain, and zero downtime. And I remember the lasers that I used to do, they did have some downtime, so this is great. Make sure to check out some of the before and after photos on the website so you can see what I'm talking about. They have YouTube videos too. But the reason it's groundbreaking is it uses that near-infrared low-level light technology, which is completely cold and painless, and it's 100 times more powerful than an LED. And the craziest part is you can even use it with a full face of makeup. So check it out for yourself. Visit lima.life. L is for live. Y is for younger. M is for masterful. A is for approved, and learn more about the Lima Laser. If you're interested in trying one today, you can sign up for their newsletter. Tell them that Food Heals sent you, and please let me know if you order one. I want to hear about your results. Again, it's lima.life, L-Y-M-A dot life. Y'all, oh my God, Food Heals Nation, I just got the softest sheets and pajama set from Cozy Earth, and I had to go and get you a discount code too, so that you could experience the coziness as well. You can visit CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS, and you'll get an exclusive 35% off. So Cozy Earth, it's like your one-stop shop for what they call the luxury she deserves. So listen up, guys because this could make a great gift for that special someone, your girlfriend, your wife, the mother in your life. And don't forget, Mother's Day will be here before we know it. So get a gift for the mom or moms. Here's a nice little gift you could ask for. Anyways, let's start with the sheets to transform your sleep. The coolest thing about Cozy Earth Bedding is that it is temperature regulating. So you stay cool, which is so important when you're sleeping. Plus they are just so soft. It feels like I'm sleeping on a cloud. Plus I love the cozy earth quality and longevity promise. All products come with a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty. So incorporating cozy earth products into your self-care routine can enhance your sleep quality and just overall wellness. So Again, this is the luxury you deserve. You can treat yourself to the ultimate in comfort and indulgence with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize your self-care and sleep health. 
And while you're at it, don't forget to check out the Bamboo Pajama Set. It was awarded Oprah's Favorite Things in 2019, so you know it's good. I love the softness and breathability of the fabric, and it has these really great side pockets. And don't forget that by supporting our sponsors, you support this show. Head over to CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS for an exclusive 35% off, and go get your mom the luxury she deserves on Mother's Day at CozyEarth.com with promo code FOODHEALS. Food Heals Podcast, episode 111. Groups like the Humane Society of the United States have been conducting undercover exposés at factory farms and slaughter plants. And the cruelty that we're exposing has been hideous, leading to meat recalls, slaughter plant shutdowns, criminal animal cruelty convictions, and more. Hell yeah. Meat- <laughs> Hell yes. Holistic Voice presents the Food Heals Podcast with your hosts, Alison Melody and Susie Hardy. Join the Food Hills Nation and learn the secrets to go from feeling unwell to healing yourself. Warning, side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, an increase in sexual activity, feelings of joy, cravings for kale and quinoa, and a spike in Tinder matches. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to actually start using their $39.99 a month gym membership. If you experience any of these symptoms, Snapchat your trainer immediately. All right, welcome Food Hills Nation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Allison Melody. And I'm Susie Hardy. Today's guest is Paul Shapiro. Paul is the Vice President of Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States, which is the world's largest animal protection organization. And one of our favorite organizations, these guys do amazing work. I had the honor of meeting Paul at this fabulous event in LA, and I highly recommend everyone follow Humane Society so you can go to these galas where I got to meet Aerosmith, okay? Like, <laughs> like, you have unprecedented access to amazing, amazing people. Paul directs one of the Humane Society's biggest advocacy teams, spearheading legislative initiatives to prevent farm animal abuse and engaging with major food corporations to help end the cruelest agribusiness practices from their supply chains. He also leads a nationwide campaign to increase demand for plant-based proteins by reducing consumption of animal products. Wow, that's a lot of worthy causes. He is a very busy man. I know, he definitely is. We're honored to have him on today. But first, we have to tell you about our sponsor. Our sponsor today is the Global Healing Center, where you can get 20% off any Global Healing Center brand product. Like Oxy Powder. I love Oxy Powder. It is a safe and effective colon cleanse product that uses the power of oxygen to gently cleanse and detoxify your entire digestive tract. It relieves of gas, bloating, occasional constipation. It it works, Food Heals Nation. I'm just going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they still have our old favorites, the Parfait Visage Wrinkle Reducing Cream and my fave, the Aqua Spirit Refreshing Spray Beach in a Bottle. Beach in a Bottle, Food Heals Nation. You can also try their O2 Zap ozonated olive oil, and this helps with eczema and acne. So we get a lot of questions about those two. Besides changing your diet, which we know is number one, check out the O2s app. They're all organic, all vegan, all natural. Lots of great products, Food Heals Nation. I buy from them regularly. My whole family does. Check them out at globalhealingcenter.com and use the discount code FOODHEALS for 20% off any Global Healing Center brand product. Next up, our interview with Paul. The Food Hills Podcast starts now. All right, today we're here with a very exciting guest, Paul Shapiro. 
Paul founded the nonprofit animal protection organization Compassion Over Killing in 1995 as a high school club. Over a decade, he built it up into a national organization before joining the Humane Society in 2005. I mean, that's amazing that something that he formed in high school became this national organization. So I cannot wait to talk to him about that. And today, Compassion Over Killing is one of the world's leading organizations, which is dedicated to combating factory farming. So we're going to talk to Paul about that. We're going to talk to him about his work with the Humane Society and how he's really gone undercover to show people what's really going on behind the lens in these factory farms. So I can't wait to find out more. Welcome, Paul. Allison, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be with you. We're so glad to have you. So what first motivated you to get into animal activism and animal rights? You know, when I was a kid, which sadly was a long time ago, I grew up loving animals. We had dogs in my family, and those dogs really were not just like pieces of property to me, but they were more like my brothers and sisters. In fact, I'll confess to you that I probably loved them more than my biological family members at that time, <laughs> which may not be that odd of an experience for, for a lot of people. But uh, as I grew up loving them, a friend of mine, uh, showed me when I was 13 this video. It's a video that showed what happens to animals on factory farms mm -hmm. and in slaughter plants and, and in circuses and fur farms and so on. And I remember feeling just so horrified by it. I was horrified not just because of the animal abuse that I was seeing for the first time, but also because I kept thinking to myself, what if those were my dogs? Right. What if those are my dogs in those cages or in having their throats cut or being experimented on or having their fur ripped from their skin while they were still conscious? And I knew like there was nothing I wouldn't do to prevent that type of cruelty from befalling my own dogs. And so I decided that if I didn't want that to happen to my dogs, I shouldn't want it to happen to any animal when I became a vegetarian. Then as I started learning more. This is like back in 1993. I didn't wrote, there was no internet or anything. And so I wrote letters to animal advocacy organizations and they sent me responses. And some of them were talking wow. about these people. Some of these people were, they were talking about these people called vegans, like, vegans, <laughs> vegan. what is a vegan? And they were saying like, Oh, you know, people who don't eat meat or eggs or dairy. And I thought to myself, wow, okay. Like I, I can understand that the egg and the dairy industry is maybe abusive, like they're saying, but to not eat any animal products, I, I really, I thought it was kind of like holding your breath, you know, like you can hold your breath for a while, but if you do it for too long, you die. And I thought that must be what it was like to be one of these vegans. And so <laughs> um, I, I decided I would start volunteering for these animal groups that were in my area. And I met these people who I then learned were called vegans. I mm -hmm. thought, wow, vegans. They were, and I asked them how long they've been doing it. Many of them told me that they'd been vegan for years. And they looked healthy to me. I kept on like, staring at them, wanting to see like if they were too pale or did they look iron deficient or something. <laughs> but no, they looked very healthy. And then one of them told me that Carl Lewis, who was like the Olympic gold gold medal champion of the day, was a big hero of mine, that he was also a vegan. And mm -hmm. that was it for me. I was like, wow, if Carl Lewis can be vegan, I'm a vegan. So this was maybe about a month after becoming vegetarian, I became a vegan. And there was no club for animals in my high school. So I thought, why not start one? And that's really what brought me down my trajectory of getting involved in the animal advocacy movement. That one video that my friend showed me that led to all of this. 
I mean, that's amazing that one video can make a difference. And now today there are so many videos that people can watch. There's so much access to this information that didn't exist back then. So I'm glad that, you know, something affected you that strongly. And so the organization that you formed became a huge organization, right? So the club that I started in high school, it was called Compassion Over Killing, but pretty quickly I realized like I didn't want to just have a club. I wanted to have it be an, a DC wide organization. And so started organizing events throughout the city to promote animal protection and, and increase interest in vegan eating and helping to put vegan options on the menus in DC area restaurants. And then as I went from high school into college, I started thinking, God, you know, we really ought to make this into a national organization. And so uh, toward the end of my high school career, I decided that we would get it incorporated and uh, become a 501c3 charity with the IRS. And so by the time I was done with high school, we really were, at least in on paper, a national organization. And throughout college, I kept on building it up and building it up to the point where by the end we were doing, by the end of my college career, we were doing undercover investigations at factory farms and at slaughter plants and you know, Allison, you bring up this idea about it's so easy to show people videos. Well, in 2001, we at Compassion Over Killing made this video, the first video we made about the egg industry. We had conducted an undercover investigation of this big egg factory in Maryland. And we wanted to show the world what it was like to be an egg-laying chicken. Mm -hmm. And we printed up a thousand VHS copies of this thing. We called it Hope for the Hopeless. And my apartment was basically just boxes and boxes of this VHS tape. It was like my, my furniture was just boxes of them. And I remember when we sold the thousandth copy of that VHS, I was so impressed. I thought, wow, a thousand people have seen what we saw inside of that hellhole in that egg factory. Mm -hmm. And maybe they showed it to the, maybe each of them showed it to a friend or they watched it with their family. Maybe thousands of people saw it. But today, you know, at the Humane Society of the United States, we'll release an undercover investigation and within the first day on Facebook and YouTube, maybe have upwards of a million views. Yeah. There's just no there's just no comparison to the efficiency with which we can spread this information about animal welfare problems in, in animal agriculture from today compared to then. And my hope is that we're creating more and more animal advocates in the process. You absolutely are. And I would love to hear about really what it meant to go undercover. Were you scared? What was the process like and what did you see? Well, the first time I ever went inside of an egg factory, I didn't really know much about what we would find. I knew that there were nearly a million animals who were confined in this operation, which is a pretty modestly sized egg farm for modern day egg farming. But Aside from that, I didn't really know what, what to expect. Mm -hmm. And my friends and I drove out. It was about two hours away from where we lived in Maryland. And we saw these long windowless warehouses. If you didn't smell the stench of manure in the air, you would have no idea that a million animals lived in this facility. A million. A million. It's one facility. We got out of our car and we walked up to the facility. And yes, I was very nervous. Uh, my heart was pounding. Remember, I reached my right hand out to grab the doorknob, and my heart just felt like it was in my throat. Mm. I twisted that doorknob clockwise, 
pulled the door toward me and when we looked in, you couldn't really see more than a few feet in. It was just so dark. Mm-hmm. Seemed like this darkness was engulfing the local space before us. We stepped into that darkness, closed the door behind us, and now it was so pitch black we couldn't even see our hand just inches away from our face. Oh my God. So we turned on our headlamps and as far as the light would shine, it was nothing but manure and flies. Oh. We were in the manure pit of this egg factory. And so I looked up, and just a few feet above us, there they were. Suspended just above us were thousands of yellow feet clutching gray metal wiring. These birds were immobilized, crammed wing to wing and beak to beak in their cages. There was not a single square inch of unused space inside of the cage. We walked upstairs and we documented on video and still photos birds who were crammed in Cages so small, they couldn't even spread their wings. Birds who had died in their cages and were rotting with the living birds laying eggs for human consumption right on top of the corpses. Uh. Birds who were trapped in the wires of their cages, they couldn't even access food or water despite being just inches away from it. I mean, it was something that I'd say was worse than anything I had ever imagined, worse than anything you'd read about in Dante's Inferno, for example. Mm -hmm. And yet there was nothing abnormal about this facility. This was a typical egg factory farm producing eggs for the mainstream American supermarkets. And so that experience really had a transformative effect on me in terms of helping me recognize really what the purpose of my life is, which is to reduce the most amount of suffering in the world that I can. And because there's such a vast amount of suffering endured by these animals on whom we are waging an unrelenting war, an unprovoked war, I would like to try to end that war. That's really my goal is to prevent and end this massacre that we are inflicting on the animals with whom we share this planet. For me, the animals on this planet are not just here for us, really they are here with us. And I'd like to create a relationship with them that is based more on compassion and respect than on the violence and domination that it's been based on for for far too long. Paul, I have a question for you. Um, Do you think that since you've had that experience that factory farming has gotten worse? Well, in the United States, things are, are getting better. It's slow, it's not happening fast enough, but globally the situation is getting worse. So in the US, since that time, uh, in 2001, when I first visited that egg factory, not a single state had banned any factory farming practices. Today, uh, 10 states have passed laws to at least restrict the most inhumane forms of confinement of farm animals. Um, at the same time, meat consumption in the U.S. is also declining. And so uh, since 2008 to the present, consumption of meat in the U.S. has continued a steady decline. Modest, but still, at least it's going in the right direction. As well, it's not just laws that we're passing, but a lot of the biggest egg buyers, for example, McDonald's and Safeway and Costco and so on, are demanding that their egg suppliers stop confining their birds in cages. Now, going cage-free doesn't necessarily mean cruelty-free conditions, but it does mean better conditions where the birds suffer less. So yeah, I do think that in some respects, the situation for farm animals is getting better in the United States and in Europe. But if you look globally at Brazil and India and China, things are going in the wrong direction. 
they're uh, increasing their demand for meat. There's more factory farming, and we've got a long way to go to help curb that rise in demand for animal products that's happening in the developing world, while at the same time further bringing our own demand in the United States and in the rest of the developed world down because it is still at astronomical rates. Well, we've got our work cut out for us, and you sure are (laughs) on the forefront of this, and thank you. When you were saying your mission in life, I just got quiet because I I was getting chills, and I just felt really emotionally effective, so I just want to say thank you for what you're doing for the planet, for the animals, because they need champions like you to do it, and I just, I think that there's a lot of people that sit passively, including vegans, um, because there's a lot of people that, well, I'm, I'm vegan and so I'm making a difference. And absolutely they are. We are. But what are some things that we can do on the ground in our daily lives? Or are there volunteer opportunities? Like what can we do to support the work that you're doing? Uh, that's awesome, Allison. First and foremost, I'd be very happy for people to support the work that we're doing or to do their own work for farm animals. The the desperate, dire need that these animals are in is so, so immense that there's really the kitchen cannot have too many cooks in it. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, you're right. So look, I, I'm a vegan. You're a vegan. I've been a vegan for 23 years. I think it's a good thing to do. But being vegan really is about reducing the harm that you're causing. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean much more than that if you're not also active. And so you want to, yes, you want to reduce the harm that you're personally responsible for. But we also want to prevent harms in the world that even you aren't responsible for. Right. And so there is... Um, a, a tendency, I think, among some vegans to worry so much about trying to get yourself to be so pure, to root out every little animal ingredient, micro-ingredients, as if there's some like quest for perfection. For me, being vegan, it's really an aspirational statement. It's not a pledge of perfection. It's an aspirational statement to try to do the best that you can to prevent cruelty that you're causing. But we need to help other people do the same. And the fact is that, for example, I'm sure most of your listeners are here in America, and Americans eat more meat on a per capita basis than just about any nation on earth. Right. And so we have a tremendous obligation to bring our own demand down, and that means helping support anybody who wants to move in the right direction, whether somebody wants to start out with a Meatless Mondays, or maybe they want to do like what Mark Bitt. Bitman does, which is vegan before 6 p.m., yep. or you can do what I do, which is vegan before 6 p.m. and vegan after 6 p.m., <laughs> but, but either way, we should be supportive of anybody who wants to move in the right direction. I, I can't stand when I hear vegans who get so critical or self-righteous of folks who maybe aren't at the same place where they're at. We have to recognize that we don't want just a social club. We want a social movement. And to have a social movement, we have to have a big tent. We have to welcome people where they are yes. and celebrate them. We want to celebrate them for taking their first steps rather than punishing them for not yet taking what we would consider to be their last steps. So by being a friendly ambassador for animals, by being effective in our outreach for to help promote plant-based eating, That, I think, is such a critical thing. Now, in addition to promoting plant-based eating, yes, there are specific campaigns 
that we can engage in to help move the ball forward for farm animals. The most important one is happening in Massachusetts for the next four months, mm. where that state is the battleground state in the nation in, in the nation's debate about factory farming and the proper treatment of animals. We've managed to secure placement on the statewide ballot, a measure that if voters pass it this November, will make Massachusetts the first state that will ban the sale of eggs, pork, and veal from animals who are confined in cages. Wow. It's a criti critically important campaign, precedent setting. It's already under attack from the meat and egg lobby. Of course. And we are in a battle royale there, and we need everybody. Even if you don't live in Massachusetts, we want you to come to Massachusetts. If you can't come to Massachusetts, we want you to sign up to phone bank to call Massachusetts voters and urge them to vote yes on question three. So this November 8th, when people go to the ballot in Massachusetts to vote on Hillary versus Donald, they're also gonna be voting on a measure called question three. And it's imperative that Massachusetts voters vote yes on question three to prevent animal cruelty. And Paul, how can people find out um, if they want to get involved in that? Usually we save this for the end of the show. We'll definitely I know, put it in I the know, show but notes, okay. but I feel like it needs to be put in here. I if need you to have know it. now. I need to know now. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, the website to sign up to volunteer is just citizensforfarmanimals.com. Great. Thank you. Yeah, and I we can put this at the end too, but I would also say that I have a great newsletter which you can sign up for and get a once a week simple email about what's going on in the world of farm animal protection. And you can sign up at humanesociety.org slash Paul Shapiro. So I have a confession to make. Um, I say this on the show. I never hide it. You know, I'm not a vegan. I am a huge animal rights activist. I love animals. I eat a lot less meat than I ever used to. But I do have a question. I meet a lot of vegans and they're like, oh, it's got honey. Oh, no, no, no. What's so wrong with honey? Sure. Well, first, Susie, let me just say that you should be applauded for reducing your meat consumption. That's doing better than what most people were doing. And I think that if... I could get everybody to reduce their meat consumption by even 50%, I would die a pretty happy person. But yeah. uh, hopefully, <laughs> you know, there, this is about progress. It's not about perfection. Right. And if our, our movement isn't one that demands some type of orthodoxy, we celebrate anybody moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in that spirit, let me answer your question, which is that, uh, frankly, I think that vegans make too much of a big deal about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the re you know, when people think about vegan, if they think about it in a strict sense, like, okay, anything that is an animal product, you must religiously avoid in an orthodox puritanical way, that obscures the, the motivation that a lot of people, myself included, have for being vegan, which is to prevent animal suffering and, and reject animal cruelty. If you're concerned about insects, Clearly, there are many so-called vegan foods that really harm way more insects than honey production does. So, for example, think about sugarcane production, where they slash and burn these fields, use huge amounts of insecticides on the on the cane. And so more insects are killed through sugarcane production than through honey production. And yet many vegans would say they would eat cane sugar, but not honey. And I would ask them why. Is it because you have some religious objection to consuming <laughs> it? Or is it because you actually think that that's the path that causes the least amount of animal suffering? Then on top of it, add to the fact that many people 
will hear that, oh, vegans don't eat meat, eggs, or dairy, and they'll think, okay, like, I can understand that. And then they hear about honey, and like, okay, like, that just sounds so crazy. <laughs> and, and they write it off because human beings have an all-or-nothing mentality. Right. Too, many pe- too many people think, if I can't do everything, I may as well do nothing because otherwise I'm going to be a so-called hypocrite. When nobody is doing everything, nobody is, none of us are. We're all contributing harm. You know, I, fl- I fly a lot for my job, which causes a lot of greenhouse gases. I drive which is is terrible for it takes up wildlife habitat to have all these roads there are so many things that we all do that are harmful to animals uh it's it's weird for to me to draw these arbitrary lines that some of them are so strict um you know it reminds me also uh, not that long ago i was giving a speech and in the audience a, a woman said i could totally be a vegetarian but i, I just can't say no to my grandmother's thanksgiving turkey <laughs> and i said then eat the turkey. Yeah. You're a vegetarian 364 days a year, and one day a year, make your grandmother happy. If that's the best you can do, then that's the best you can do for now. Yeah. And do that. And so, I mean, to the meat industry, there's not a big difference between somebody who's a vegetarian 364 days a year versus 365. Right. And But the perception that she had that she should just eat meat all the time because one day a year she felt there was some social pressure to eat to eat it. I mean, that is a, a bad mentality for vegans to put out there. And it, it, it makes me very uh, sad to, to when I hear people talking about it in these all or nothing terms. And so, sure, Susie, I wouldn't worry about honey. I think it's a distraction from the real issues at hand. And look, I'm a big fan of bees. I want more bees. I'm, I'm all about bees. I don't want to harm bees. Uh, at the same time, I have a feeling that lots of foods that, that vegans happily consume probably harm a lot more insects than honey production does. I love that response. I agree. I totally agree. I also think that coming from my perspective, I also f- have felt that kind of pressure. It's like, oh, well, if you're not going to give up animal products, then, you know, forget it. Versus when it, it dawned on me, it's like, oh, I could, you know, maybe just eat it on the weekends or eat half as much or one quarter as much. That completely switched a light on for me. It's like, okay, because I, I, when I have given up meat, my body didn't feel so great. Maybe I was going about it the wrong way. But the fact that people in general don't have to look at so <laughs> black or white and can just reduce what they are doing yeah. is a, a big light bulb moment for me. Well, first off, Susie, I'm glad that I now know that she goes by Allie because here I was calling her Allison. Like, oh, we go by. She oh, I both. go by both. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, everyone calls me both. I'll respond to either one. <laughs> but, uh, but second of all, I mean, let me just ask you this. So, um, think about somebody in your life who you know who identifies as a Christian. That's what I was and, just thinking of, Paul. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So. <laughs> Um, what th- what's this person's name? One, either one of you. Lindsay. Okay, so you go up to Lindsay and you're like, Lindsay, so you're a Christian? And she's like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. You say, okay, cool, so you follow the Bible. And she's like, well, um, yeah, I try to for sure. You say, okay, uh, but like at least the Ten Commandments, right? At least you're, you're doing the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, definitely Ten Commandments. Okay, so do you keep the Sabbath holy? Probably Lindsay doesn't keep the Sabbath holy, right? Even though that's one of the Ten Commandments. These aren't like the Ten Recommendations. They're the Ten Commandments. No, Sunday, Sunday, fun day. Lindsay isn't keeping that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Right, so Lindsay is out there partying her ass off, right? And so (laughs) the thing is, you're not going to say Lindsay isn't a Christian because she doesn't comport with every rule of the religion. Right. Yet, when did vegetarianism or veganism become such an orthodox religion yeah. that if you are less perfect 
then you aren't even considered part of the group anymore? Like, how is it that the religions can allow people to be a member without comporting with every single rule? Yet for some reason, there's this orthodoxy that's associated with a diet of vegetarianism or veganism. We ought to be doing the best that we can. And we can always do better. I mean, I can do better. I'm sure you both can do better. We can strive for continuous improvement. I recognize that I may not be living the ideally optimal effective lifestyle for reducing suffering in the world but i'm trying very hard and i'm doing my best and i think that's what we should expect for people to try their best not to actually live up to some test of religious purity so to speak i love that so much preach it paul so well said and i completely agree and that's actually why i never actually refer to myself as a vegan i always say that i have a plant-based diet because i feel like that gives me more allowance to be a human being where if you say vegan and someone sees you do something they're they judge you and you're You're eating honey yeah or or just any it can be anything Uh, they're they're gonna if you say tell them that they're gonna judge you before they see you doing anything they're gonna automatically think about, I mean, the connotations, unfortunately, are not that good. And I mean, it it reminds me of, um, this was done in the UK, but there was a study where they were labeling, it wasn't vegan, it was vegetarian, but they put on the packages of these, um, these plant-based products, they're they're selling the supermarket. And one half of them, they're the same thing, but they were labeled vegetarian, whereas the other half were labeled just meat free. Mm, and the ones labeled meat free, I don't remember the exact percentages, but it was substantially higher sales than the ones that were labeled vegetarian, despite the fact that it was the same exact product. And so yeah, that's in the UK. And it's with vegetarian, not vegan. But the point is that words matter. Yeah. And we have to pick the most effective words to help animals. And if being right were sufficient, we would have been we would have won long ago. But animals don't need us to be right. They need us to be both right and effective. There's a big, big difference. And sometimes uh, not telling people that, you know, one thing like you don't tell people you're vegan, you say plant based. That's probably more effective in a lot of social circles for you, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it is. And I live in L.A. where there is a huge vegan culture and a lot of people are spreading the word in a very loving, compassionate way. And a lot of people are very strict, just like we were just talking about. And if you're not part of the religion, you're an outcast or your judge. And that's not a society that I want to be a part of. You, know? uh, yeah. you, you, and, you and me both, Howie. Listen, yeah. I, I don't... I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be associated, for example, with people who go yell at people who are eating at Chipotle. I mean, that is a, a, a type of, of association, frankly, I don't want. Right. First, because I don't think it's effective. But second, I love Chipotle. I love going there. It's awesome. Have you had their sofritas? Yeah, I have. It's a great thing because it's everywhere you travel. So I travel a lot too, Paul, like you, and I'm in these different cities and sometimes they're smaller towns. If there's a Chipotle or Whole Foods, I know that I can get something. So those brand names are important to me. (laughs) Oh, those are like those two places form the staple of my diet while traveling. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I have another question for you. What are your thoughts on these ag-gag bills? So I'm from North Carolina, and you probably are aware of this, but they passed a law which basically says that 
you can no, no longer have cameras in the slaughterhouses. And this is obviously to protect the meat and dairy industry and to prevent people like yourselves and your organizations and the up and coming Pauls that are, you know, 17 and want to go undercover uh, from doing this. And so how do we get around that? Is that going to continue to grow? What do you see with this ag gag situation? Yeah, it's a real concern. Groups like the Humane Society of the United States have been conducting undercover exposés at factory farms and slaughter plants. And the cruelty that we're exposing has been hideous, leading to meat recalls, slaughter plant shutdowns, criminal animal cruelty convictions, and more. Hell yeah. The meat... Hell yes. <laughs> the bad news is that the meat industry's response to our exposés has not been to try to prevent the cruelty from taking place. Rather, it is to try to prevent people from finding out about the cruelty by trying to support these ag-gag bills. They've introduced more than 30 ag-gag proposals in legislatures across the country, and fortunately, we've been able to kill nearly all of them. A few of them have passed. In Idaho, the one that passed was subsequently ruled unconstitutional by a court, but there are still a few that are on the books, and they make it uh, difficult and in some cases almost impossible for anybody to blow the whistle on abuse inside of an agribusiness operation and really demonstrates just how desperate the meat industry is. It is grasping at straws, trying to keep Americans in the dark about the rampant animal cruelty within its own industry. And the best curative for that type of an ill is sunshine. And sunshine in the form of whistleblowing exposés is the best way that we can find out what's actually happening in our food production system in the country. Hell yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, no, I'm really impressed that, you know, you guys are, are just doing so much. And I met you at this Humane Society Gala, which was a fabulous event. If anyone can go next year, I was in L.A. and it was, you know, Aerosmith and all these Diane Warren, all these amazing people. Um, but at that event, I learned so much about what you guys were doing that I had no idea. And so I just invite you to, you know, keep bragging and tell us more about some of your successes that you've really been able to, you know, stopping the ag gag bills. I didn't even know that. The only one I hear about consistently because of where I'm from. So I, you know, follow this is North Carolina and it makes me sick to my stomach that this was allowed to happen. And so what are some other successes that you can tell us about? Well, first, I'm psyched that you mentioned the event in L.A. Yeah, we did have Aerosmith and Diane Warren, but we also had Allison Melody. It was huge. <laughs> Shut pop, up. Pop, you got Allison Melody? <laughs> wow. The paparazzi was crazy. I couldn't keep them out. We did get on the red carpet. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Trust me, I saw this. I was blinded by the flashing lights that were going off when you did. <laughs> Paul, you're too kind. <clears throat> so... There's a lot that's happening, but um, one of the most exciting things for me is this shift in advocacy from individual outreach mm -hmm. to institutional. So a lot of the animal advocacy, especially for farm animals, has been focused on trying to persuade millions of individuals to eat less or no meat, as an example. And that's all good. I'm for it. I'm, I think it's a good idea to do it. At the same time, we are not getting rid of battery cages for chickens, for example, by persuading millions of individuals to go out and consciously change the type of eggs they're buying. Rather, we're getting the biggest buyers of eggs, Walmart, McDonald's, and so on, to tell their egg suppliers they have to go cage-free. Mm -hmm. The same thing can happen with meat. No, we're not going to get Walmart or McDonald's to say we're not going to sell meat, obviously, but 
many of the biggest meat users are interested in using less meat. So you talk about Los Angeles. Well, we worked with the Los Angeles School District, K through 12, which serves 700,000 meals every single school day to go entirely vegetarian on Mondays. They're now doing Meatless Monday. All vegetarian every Monday. That's 700,000 fewer meat-based meals just because of one institutional policy every single week. Oh, this is incredible. I have chills. I'm so excited. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Sorry. In Detroit, it is exciting. In Detroit, we did the same exact thing, except they liked their Meatless Monday program so much for their K-12 through school system that now they're vegetarian two days a week in Detroit. And so these are the types of advancements that we can make when we start getting strategic and thinking about how can we advance the interests of animals, public health, environmental sustainability, childhood nutrition. These are the types of policies that are just win-win for everybody involved, including the school districts, because they end up saving money. It's a lot cheaper, for example, to serve a bean and rice burrito than a beef burrito, or to go with three bean chili rather than uh, beef chili. These are simple switches that they can make that are better off for everybody. And so I'm super psyched about it. I think it's a very innovative way to go about advancing the aims of the animal welfare movement. And I hope to see more and more advocates who are utilizing it. This is so exciting. All right, we'll be right back with Paul's tips for being a successful animal rights activist. Today's show is sponsored by the Global Healing Center. You know them. We talk about them all the time. You know that all their products are organic, are free of GMOs, use no toxic ingredients, are eco-friendly. And you know that I'm obsessed with their Parfait Visage. And I'm obsessed with their Aqua Spirit Refreshing Spray. And you know we scored a discount code for you to get 20% off of their products. Yep. Use coupon code FOODHEALS to get 20% off plus free shipping on your purchase at globalhealingcenter.com. You are listening to the Food Heals Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. All right, Food Heals Nation, we're back with Paul. Paul is an inductee into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame and has been interviewed by hundreds of print, broadcasts, and online news outlets as an authority on farm animal welfare and animal advocacy. Paul's also published dozens of articles about animal welfare in publications ranging from daily newspapers to academic journals. Well, I'm so glad we got him on here. I know. We're honored. (laughs) Okay, so here's some... The honor is mine. (laughs) Um, So Susie was asking about on the break, can you tell us about lab-grown meat and cultured meat and what that means? In fact, my friends, I can. But (laughs) let me first start by telling you a quick story. All right. From really the beginning of the American colonies until the middle of the 19th century, the primary source of fuel for lighting all of our homes was whale oil. Hmm. Whale oil drove the American economy. In fact, America was really the nation that lit the entire world trading whale oil around the globe and it it was the big pool it was like the tobacco or the oil industry in fact it literally was the oil industry at that time but in terms of big lobbies in the capital and so on it just was the big economic driver and whales were being hunted really nearly to extinction i mean in the 1840s people were really concerned about whether there would be enough whales to satiate this seemingly insatiable demand Hmm. that people had for whale oil there was no alternative. People just kept needing, people kept wanting more and more whale oil. And then 
1853, a Canadian geologist named Abraham Gesner invented kerosene and patented it. Mm. And within two decades, everyone had switched from whale oil to kerosene because it was more affordable and a superior way to light our homes. Mm -hmm. The whaling industry was decimated. This huge oil industry decimated by more than 80% within just two decades. And so the question is, could something like that happen to the meat industry? In think about it with regard to our own transportation. For centuries, our only real mode of transportation was horse-drawn carriages. Mm-hmm. Horses were savagely beaten in the streets, horribly serving in bondage to us to transport us all around. There were the big animal welfare campaigns of the 1870s, which is really uh, approximately when all of these animal groups were being founded in the late 1860s and early 1870s were because of the mistreatment of horses. Mm. And yet what ended up freeing horses from bondage in our streets wasn't humane sentiment. It was that Henry Ford invented the car. So if kerosene liberated whales from harpoons and cars liberated whales from our cities, what if it's possible that a technological advancement could liberate farm animals as well? And cultured meat may be that type of technological advancement. Yes, the plant-based meats that we have are good and getting better. Veggie burgers today are much better than veggie burgers a decade ago, and I'm sure the decade from now they're going to be even better. Mm-hmm. But you know, right now the plant-based meat market is still at less than 1% of all the meat that's sold in our country. It's it's a minuscule fraction of meat sales. And what if there were a way to produce meat, real animal meat, without actually raising and slaughtering animals? And it's not hypothetical. It's not science fiction to grow meat in the lab. It is science fact. We are already doing it. Wow. A number of star- a number of startup companies are taking one cell, you can take one cell from a biopsy from an animal and in vitro grow that into muscle that is anatomically identical to regular animal muscle because it is. This isn't an alternative to animal products. It is an animal product. And we're doing it with meat. We're doing it with eggs. We're doing it with milk. Now, none of these have been commercialized yet, Mm -hmm. but there are commercial companies that are racing to do just that. In fact, I am proud to say that while there are more human beings who have lived on the International Space Station than there are humans who have eaten cultured meat, I am one of the lucky few who actually did eat cultured meat two years ago. I got a wow. chance to have a oh small God. amount of, of lab-grown beef. And, you know, like, I'm, like I said, I've been a vegan for more than two decades, and so it's quite a surreal experience for me sure. to, to eat this. But I'm a, a vegan because I don't want to harm animals. Right. And clearly, I don't have any ethical concerns with this. I'm, I'm, I don't think that I don't really care whether vegans or vegetarians eat it, to be perfectly honest with you. I want meat eaters to eat it so that farm animals are spared. Yeah. But th- and, and it would be a great, great solution for carnivorous pets like cats and dogs, for example. But the reality is that cultured meat might be what ends up sparing untold billions of animals from the misery of factory farms and slaughter plants. And I am such an advocate for it that I'm actually writing a book about the promise that cultured meat has right now. It's going to come out next year. It's going to be sold. I've sold the book to Reagan Arts, which is part, uh, distributed by Simon & Schuster. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to getting this book out there and helping frame the discussion about cultured meat because it's not on the market now but within a matter of years, it will be. 
And there'll be a real cultural discussion that will have to be had about what does this mean? Should we call it meat? Should we call it cultured meat? Should we call it clean meat? What do we call it? Uh, what are the types of benefits that it has? Obviously, there's tremendous animal protection benefits, but there's other huge benefits too. You can control what types of fats go in there. So you could, instead of putting saturated fat in, can have omega-3 fatty acids and have a hamburger that instead of causing heart attacks, prevents them. These products, obviously, these products, you can have cholesterol-free eggs, pus-free milk. And because they are produced without the animal, you don't have E. coli or salmonella. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, pathogens like E. coli and salmonella are intestinal. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, there are no intestines when you're growing this meat in a culture. So you're having meat that is much safer to eat, eat much, much more cleanly produced, and really far better than the meat that is sold today because it's safer and you can make it even healthier. Paul, what did it taste like? <laughs> uh, Says well, the, the meat very, eater. <laughs> the very, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I've, since I've not eaten meat in so long, I'm probably a very bad judge of, of just how meat-like it was. In addition, the amount that I had was extremely small because at this point it, it's still very expensive. Not that I water they gave it to me but um it was extremely you know these i mean the world's first cultured hamburger cost over three hundred thousand dollars to make oh my wow. god that was, that, that was just a few months prior to when i ate this cultured beef so even a small bite is worth quite a lot of money so but to answer your question Susie, it was a uh, dehydrated piece of barbecued jerky and so to me it tasted like barbecue that was the only real sensation that i had with it mm. It's so fascinating, Paul. I cannot wait until this is the norm, and I can't wait to read your book. That's very nice of you. I can't wait for you to read it either. And more (laughs) importantly, I can't wait for cultured meat, milk, eggs, and leather to hit the market because they are soon coming. We're probably going to have cultured leather on the market maybe within even two years, and that is going to be a radical transformation. And so I, I can buy leather products again. Yay. <laughs> Not that I yeah. care that much, but you know, yes. I have that, you know, here's the thing about um, shoes and bags. I have a bone to pick because I, I have no problem buying plastic or faux kind of uh, things to wear. However, they're just as expensive as leather. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand well, that. I feel like if something's produced, it should be cheaper. Like those, exp- like you know what I'm talking about, Allie. I know you've seen, like, yeah, I'm sure, of, like, yeah, of course. And then also, there's another ethical dilemma of where was it made? What country was it made in? Was there slave labor? Was there child labor? Like everything yeah. has an issue. I think we should yeah, just go right, back exactly. to hemp and, and canvas. Wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't it be better if you knew that it was just produced in, in a, a lab? lab? I'm down. I'm in. Yeah, I am totally down. I, I've held cultured leather in my hand before. And cool. what's so cool is that they can control how thick it is, how thin it is, how translucent it is, make it more permeable. And there's so much waste in the leather industry. Like for wristwatches, there's tons of waste because it's such a little strip, like strip that they need mm. that a lot of it gets cut off and thrown out. But with cultured leather, you can grow it in whatever shape you want right now. Now, weather only comes in the shape of a cow, but we can grow weather in the shape of a wristwatch or the shape of a car seat or the shape of a shoe so that you have so much less waste as well. And you don't need all of the same 
very toxic chemicals for the tanning process because you don't have to get rid of the fat or the hide or the hair that uh, and sometimes fur. You don't have to get rid of it. You can have um, the same process that just requires far fewer toxic chemicals and doesn't have to be just leather. Uh, you could culture an alligator skin, for example. And with meat, if you wanted, for some reason, if you really wanted to eat some exotic animal meat, you could do that too without killing an animal. It's a truly amazing world that we are living in. It's an amazing time to be alive, to see all of this, and to know this is going to not just happen within our lifetime, but to happen in the near future, something that is going to disrupt the perhaps the the most heinous environmentally abusive and animal abusive industry on earth factory farming and has this has the potential to disrupt it in a way that kerosene did for whales and cars did for horses it's amazing and i love those stories you're really put you're really putting it into perspective for us and this is blowing my mind right now i'm so excited i feel like we interview people all the time but this is the first time i've heard like a solution that can last because it feels like the whole debates between Democrats and Republicans right now, like no one's ever going to win. No one's ever going to convince the other side. But this is actually something that can shake things up so much that no one has to give up their huge attachment that people have to their meat and dairy. So this is fantastic news. Amen. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and I was going to, my next question was going to be about the health benefits. And you said that we can do this without E. coli and without all the, you know, growth hormones and the things that we subject animals to. Because for me, I didn't go vegetarian and then vegan because of the animal rights issues. I found out about that later. I did it for my own health after seeing both of my parents suffering from Western medicine and realizing that the healthier and more nutrient-dense diet that I was eating, which consisted of fruits and vegetables and did not consist of meat and dairy, which caused inflammation, which caused disease, was the most beneficial way for me to thrive, for anyone to overcome disease. And so I came at it from the health perspective, and then I learned about the environmental impact, and then I learned about the animal activism side of it. And so for people that are still in that place where they don't even know about the animals yet, this can also help them with the health part and go, okay, this is all multifactorial. There are so many reasons to do this. And now if you need a little meat, because I have a lot of friends that are like, you know what, I'm type O blood type. Type O blood type, you know, according to this theory of blood types, whether you believe it or not, says that these people need meat. I'm type A. Type A is vegetarian. We thrive on a vegetarian diet. And I do. I absolutely do. I thrive. I I cannot have meat or dairy in my diet or I have chronic fatigue. I suffer from whatever health issues I have. But anyway, the point is, is that this is something that is going to change everything and shake everyone's opinions and, and reasons against it up. So I'm very, very excited. Cool. And I, I, I don't really know much about the blood type stuff, but I will say that, look, human beings, a lot of them, a lot of human beings want to eat meat. And yeah. when people come out of poverty, like in third world countries where they start going into the middle class, the first thing they do is start eating more meat. Right. This is why countries like India and China have explosively rising meat consumption rates right now. And it's all nice and fine to say, well, we don't need to eat meat. We can be perfectly healthy as vegans. That's great. I, I mean, I'm a vegan and I, I do feel that way, but many people want to eat it. And so how can we provide it? in a way that doesn't harm animals. And this is one such way. 
I'm so excited. So anyone, I know we touched on this before, but anyone out there who wants to get more involved and become a more successful animal rights activist, what can they do? And then how can they, of course, find you and follow you? Well, that's very nice of you uh, to suggest that they follow me, but there's a lot of things that people can do. Again, I would just encourage people to please come visit us in Massachusetts and help us wage this historic campaign to create this extremely important law in Massachusetts that will send a very strong signal that farm animals deserve legal protection from the most heinous cruelties associated with factory farming. If you can't make it to Massachusetts, please sign up with us at citizensforfarmanimals.com and we want to enlist you to be a phone banker to call Massachusetts voters and urge them to vote yes on question three. You can get in touch with me though anytime. I'm on Twitter at P Shapiro. That's P-S-H-A-P-I-R-O. You can sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is just one text only short email about what's going on in the world of farm animal protection every Friday. You can sign up at humanesociety.org slash Paul Shapiro. Again, humanesociety.org slash Paul Shapiro. And I'd love to hear from you. So hit me anytime for any reason. I always love hearing from folks um, and what you think about the work that we're doing and would love to enlist you in that work if you're so amenable. I love that so much. So can you leave us with a tweetable? If you want a vegan-friendly world, it helps to start by being a friendly vegan. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you like that, tweet it to Paul at P Shapiro. Tweet it to us at Food Heals Nation. Use the hashtag Food Heals Podcast so we can see your post. Paul, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Paul, you're one of the friendliest vegans I've ever met. <laughs> oh, thank you, Susie. Thank you, Allie. It's great to talk with both of you. I'm honored to be on the show, and I hope our paths cross in person sometime very soon. Definitely. Me too. Food Heals Nation, don't forget to join our mailing list so you can get all the juicy details when we launch our Food Heals VIP Club. Yep, sign up today and we will email you a discount code that you can use to get 20% off anything in the club. The Food Heals VIP Club is a members-only club and holistic lifestyle brand where we will teach you strategies and classes in the fields of nutrition, spirituality, and entrepreneurship. All our favorite things to talk about. All of our favorite things. <laughs> the Food Heals VIP Club is something we've been working on for a while now, and we've just been putting our hearts and souls into it. It's been really fun and rewarding, and I just can't wait till we launch to bring you all this good stuff. So stay tuned for the launch date, but we are thrilled to bring you classes like how to do a juice cleanse, or if you are looking to add more vegan meals into your life, we're going to give you the perfect vegan meal plan for ultimate health longevity, and vitality. Or if you have a health business like we do, we'll teach you the exact strategies we use to get sponsors, how to use affiliate marketing to build your business, how to attract more clients for your coaching business, how to rock the world of social media, and just so much more. And of course, we promise to get a little woo-woo on you and teach you all about energy healing in our manifestation classes and guided meditations, like how to manifest more money or how to release food cravings and even how to attract the one. I think we should get woohoo on them. <laughs> <laughs> so go to foodhealsvip.com, sign up today. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to put in their Lululemons and take a yoga class while drinking a green juice. If you experience any of these symptoms, text your priest immediately.